Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Patricia Rosema. First, I want to ask you about um, this novel. Of, I mean, uh, Jane Austen published six novels, which have pretty much all been turned into films, and I think with the exception of Northanger Abbey, which is coming out as a film. But this um, novel was, at the time, considered one of her controversial works and um, hasn't been done as a feature film. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, how, how the book stands in relation to the rest of her work and sort of why it hasn't been done before? It's 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 very different from her other novels. Um, I guess it's less accessible, mm -hmm. um, and um, that's largely because of a choice she made, and it was very clearly a choice to make uh, Fanny Price um, sort of insufferable. I'm not allowed to say that, am I? No. I, it, it really was a choice, and, she, and, and it's hard to know exactly what the, um, uh, the, the reason was for her choice. I mean, it's, it's kind of divided scholars for years, and it's a completely interesting debate. And I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I read the novel, and it made me rush to sort of learn more about the, the author because I thought, now, why, you know, especially Jane Austen, who's capable of unbelievably engaging, scintillating sort of main characters, why would she choose to do this? Um, and I can't say that I have a complete answer to that. I, I'm just... Um, in, in fact, the whole novel, it's quite difficult to know exactly what the author's relationship is to the work, which makes it fit com completely interesting. I mean, um, so you, you know, the, the BBC did a several part uh, version of Mansfield Park in 1975, and um, it's, um, it's a sort of a very... Uh, uh, a literal tr translation to the screen, I guess, um, and this isn't. Right. It's, yeah, it's not correct to call this a straight adaptation. And there's there are changes in the character, and there's also you've incorporated aspects of Jane Austen's life and her 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 own letters and her writing. So, could you talk about your sort of how you decided to approach? Well, I I think the changes the are mostly, in my mind, additions, mm -hmm. like. Um, I, I, I mean, insufferable is perhaps a strong <laughs> word, but she's very, she's sort of thinly drawn, and you quite, you can't quite know what she thinks um, most of the time in the novel. But it's a, but it's uh, a tangled and dark work with, with um, a kind of atmosphere of of sexuality and. And and menace um, in in in, um, uh, in the whole the, the the establishment is actually dubious in this mm -hmm. case the um, so uh, it seemed a shame not to see the rest of this novel because um, because the central character isn't some wouldn't be able to to carry it right. 
And I think, in fact, in a novel, I mean, I think you absolutely, I, I sincerely hope that this movie brings people to that novel because it, it's, it's definitely um, needs reading. It's, a very, it's very fulfilling reading. It's very fulfilling rereading, actually. It, it really sustains um, re-examination over and over again, as does any sort of, you know, work by a serious author, I think. But, um, so what, but what I was saying is the additions. I added her stories, Jane Austen's short story, uh, her, her, her juvenilia, it's called her, her stories when she was a teenager, and um, some, some of her, some lines from her, from her letters. I don't change her behavior. She doesn't suddenly become some great catalyst who you know, moves mountains or is actually a really sort of a, you know, a powerful um, sort of figure. She actually, her behavior is, is pretty much um, what it is in the book. So, um, and then also the other, the other thing I add is a sense of historical awareness of, of what was going on with slavery. Right, which, which was part of her real life, part of Jane Austen's real life. So could you talk about that? Uh, um, Jane Austen's um, father was a, a, a rector who was one of his, um, he, he was also a trustee for a, a plantation in Antigua, so, uh, basically took care of, sort of the accounts of this plantation. Mm -hmm. Now, the, um, you're making a film for modern audiences, for you know, 1999, 2000 audiences. Um, and I, I'm wondering about your approach to the, dealing with period and, and modernity, you know, modernity, because um, Jane Austen was, in a way, um, ahead of her times and had a, a modern approach to language. Um, one of the interesting things I read was that in your research, um, on the language of the film and, and keeping the language um, appropriate to the times, um, a lot of times Jane Austen's own language was uh, considered ahead of, the, ahead of its times. And, and so I'm wondering sort of how you approach that, that question. Well, I had, I had checkers, you know, I mean, right. people who would sort of, I, I, would, I would use as much as, um, there's not that much dialogue in the novel, so I'd use as much dialogue right. as I could from the novel and then when I couldn't, I would go to other Austin sources. Right. Um, and when I couldn't, I would make it up. And um, then, of course, I'd, and, and I kind of try to translate it into the language of 1806. And I have this very religious background, so I actually kind of thrill in the whole kind of scriptural ring to things. But, mm. um, uh, that, but often, when I would sort of pass by my draft, past the scholars, they would sort of point to Austin lines as modern usage, modern usage. And I don't know whether they were sort of especially um, alerted because, you know, I was doing it or, mm -hmm. um, oh, but, I, but I also, you know, the, a lot of, she has so much sort of wit and irreverence in, in her language throughout that you, yeah. that it, it feels modern. And that's what I just, I, I selected, you know, throughout the, in, in the novel and in the entire situation, I selected that which I could feel because I can't make an audience feel what I don't feel. Right. So I selected that which I believe in and mm -hmm. left the rest. Was it daunting for you to do a period film? I mean, your, your previous films have been modern day. Um, in a way, this is a big, obviously a big change. But, um, and it, I, I, it would never would have crossed my mind, to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah, it was Harvey Weinstein's ideas. They, like, you know, Patricia, do you want to adapt this novel? 
why me? I really, like, really, that was the first meeting is why me? Like, what, you know, I've only done these sort of urban, kind of almost non-genre films, and, um, but I think, but, but the more I, I looked into the novel itself and the more I examined what kind of uh, respect I could bring to the enterprise, I, I, uh, I, I, I thought it was a good idea. The tone of the film is so assured to me in that it, it respects the period, but is also, um, is also sort of modern in how it's shot. And, and there are chances, there are things like um, handheld camera work, um, scenes against a, a total, you know, totally dark backgrounds. Um, yet at the same time, it doesn't feel, it's not like you're making the, um, you know, like the version of Romeo and Juliet, uh, the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet. It's, it's very respectful of the period, but at the same time, sort of playing with it and updating it. Yeah, but there is no, you know, cinema, sort of cinematographic style right. true to 1806. Right. Right? <laughs> That's the a hilarious right. assumption we bring to period pieces is that there's, that there's a, a, a proper way of framing these things, and there just, there isn't. There's a... Right. <laughs> But we remember it, we have in mind, of course, other period films, and, and um, which right, tend, that, to be, that, tend to be more opulent, more lavish, um, sort of laying on. The, I mean, one of the things I love about the film is the, the spareness and the and the um, not it's not minimalist, but it, there's a, a cleanness and spareness to it, which which which, um, which is definitely my taste, which is my yeah. preference. But it's um, you know I I was working with um, Christopher Hobbs, the designer, and he knows, he's so, so he knows periods so well, he could find me the examples of what I liked. So he knew, he knew it so well that he could find kind of, in fact, he, he believes that the Austin's work has been um, Victorianized a little bit. And in the Victorian period, there was a little bit more of that kind of overstuffed, cluttered right. feel. And that, in fact, the Regency was, was, in, was a, you know, I mean, I know it's like, what is the style of 1999? There are many styles, and, right. and you know some people would be living in um, you know a, a hundred years in the past uh, with, with their furniture. They wouldn't have bought it all at that moment. So, hmm. so there's there's a lot of room for there's a big sort of range. But yeah, we chose a very sort of I, 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 that's my my choice. I like a frame that has you know, almost nothing in it, and then you put your character in, and it's complete. Christopher yeah. always used to say that, like, how he was very wise, I thought. He thought, if you look at your set, he said that um, if you look at your set and it looks complete, then something's wrong, hmm. because it has to need the actors in it in order to be complete. Yeah, I do want to ask you about your work with Michael Coulter, who I think, I mean... To me, it's just one of the great cinematographers who shot films for Terence Davies and for Bill Forsyth. Um, so, could you talk a bit about your your approach with him? What did you decide on on your visual st style? Well, for one, just to use um, completely contemporary cinematic styles that to, that will do whatever we can to bring us closer to the experience of Fanny Price. So. She arrives at Mansfield Park and it's disorienting and hurried and jagged and, and, and upsetting, so it's, it's handheld. And um, uh, to, to, um, 
try. Um, I, I love a kind of um, as as much depth in the in the in the frame as possible. Um, we we tended towards uh, slightly longer lenses, but it varied from scene to scene. Um, you know, I, I think that as a director, there's a it's a it's a very overwhelming kind of impulse to try to um, show off, mm -hmm. and um, any time we had that inclination, I think you really have to examine yourself. You know, you're going to damage the work. You have to be really humble in front of your content, yeah. and um, if it does not completely aid the drama of that scene, then you know, you're, you're, you're wanking and it's going to show. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the, the, the ensemble uh, cast is amazing. It's really filled, it's a film that's filled with great performances. And in, um, in talking about the sort of acting style that you were going for, I, one thing I read was that you were interested in almost a documentary quality or documentary realism to the performances. So yeah. what is that? Well, that's almost you. impossible to get. You know, the smile that people have when they think they're alone, that look people have when they think they're alone or they're not being watched is entirely different than, right. you know, the way we are with others in the room. And um, I would so, I mean, I, I'm probably attracted to making movies because I'm a voyeur, because I wish for those moments. And since right. it's illegal for the most part to capture them, you have to recreate them. Right. Um, and then I just, you know, especially with this, kind of, you know, the great, uh, you know, literature, there's a tendency to deliver mm -hmm. the, the lines on a plate for the audience and make it a big moment. And, and uh, my, most of my direction was throw it away, throw it away. Just, you know, uh, just make it as absolutely, we really, ha yeah. it has to be as natural as, yeah. um, as we are. There were, there were a lot of mo just um, sort of observed moments where we were, um, you know, I'm looking at close-ups and you're seeing little nuances and facial gestures and responses. And um, could you just talk a little bit about sort of what the, you know, your rehearsal process or shooting process was, was like that you could achieve that? Well, we didn't rehearse a lot. The actors actually asked me for more rehearsals. And I said, no. Um, <laughs> and... Um, but I, I think maybe next time I understand why they wanted more because I'm kind of rehearsing over and over again when I'm writing it. That's when I become completely um, familiar with it. And, and I think I'm so, so, so terrified of killing the life in it and that we, the entire agenda is to somehow through this massive, complicated, you know, technological torture that filmmaking is to keep just a little spark of real life and truth and reality. Um, so we didn't, we, what we did fair amount though was to sit and talk about the characters and talk about you know, why they would say this next line and not something else more expected or to really, you know, we had, um, you know, a kind of a, a physical protocol expert come in and teach us right. how to curtsy and bow and uh, basic rules of body language that they would have been taught and then could have broken. You know, we, we would break the rules deliberately in some cases, like for instance when Mary Crawford is, um, makes her 
the shocking speech at the end, and um, she leaves, you know, they would have, the men would have ordinarily stood up to let her leave, but they don't. It's, mm. uh, you know, it's a diss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how much of this comes from, from sort of Austin's own writing, Jane Austen's own approach? This, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how much you felt as, the, as making the first film that was not, that you didn't write, um, you know, from scratch, what that was like for you and how you were balancing um, doing a Jane Austen, you know, something that was Jane Austen and something that was it's, Patricia Rosemont. It's a high wire act because you have to be humble in front of the work. You have to, you know, respect the fact that this has someone else's name on it, has someone else's title. You have to pay attention to that. And, um, but on the other hand, you have to claim ownership as a director because it's not a, Jane Austen movie. It's a Patricia Rosema movie. If that's uh, that sounds outrageous, but <laughs> it 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 shouldn't be. It is. It's a completely different form. Mm -hmm. So um, I I tried to look at the book, read it as many times as possible, read as much around you know it as possible, as in the sort of debates about its intent and its style and its, its you know, subtext, and then read as much about Austen herself as I could, mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then write something in the spirit of, oh, I get it. Is this what you mean, Jane? Is this, mm. is, I, I think I can feel it. This is what I can feel what you've done. Um, so that I mean, the, the, you know, it'll it'll definitely offend some, no question. And um, I just you know have to live with that. It's a it's a slightly odd um, situation because everyone, I mean, unless they really know the novel, they're saying, so now what percentage is you, and what percentage <laughs> is her? And I, you know, I, I can't really answer that. But it's great because it leads to people wanting to read read the novel, which is fantastic. And it stays, stands pure without, you know, I haven't mucked with that. Okay. <laughs> I want to give people a chance to jump in if, they, if anybody has questions. There's one right down here. Oh, I think that the Fanny Price on the screen is a probably yeah, hypothesis, but I mean it's probably more like Jane Austen herself. Absolutely, she had a she had a a wicked tongue, and she so she probably wasn't even quite as as innocent as this. Um, so there, so it, so it is it's, it's still a kind of a, a hybrid. Um, we there's lots we don't know about Jane Austen. Several years of her letters were destroyed by her sister after her death, and you can project anything into that black hole, which is fantastic because you know that because it keeps debate alive forever, um, and and projection. Yeah, um, yeah. She had a she, she she couldn't even really do a romance with a straight face, Jane Austen, and she could she did. She was working within this genre, but she was very um, uh, 
anti-sentimental, which is what I love. I really am attracted to her. And I think it's a crime to portray Jane Austen as a kind of a sentimental, romancy, gushy, you know, soap opery person, which is strangely how she comes off. She, had, she was tough-minded, um, unbelievably naturally sort of gifted with language. It just seems so pure and just tossed off, and yet the constructions are so uh, unbelievable. Um, this seems like an, an affinity to your work, the combination of the ability to do satire and genuine romanticism. I mean, When Night is Falling is a, has real romanticism in it. She would have found that too gushy, I think. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think she would have found it way too romantic. <laughs> okay. Right there? Okay. Uh, what was it like working with Harold Pinter? <laughs> I acted like a director who wasn't intimidated. Um, he was a he was a he was a, a delight actually. He was very very committed to the work. Um, he we you know we sent him the script. I had lunch with him. I stated my aims. Um, we sort of introduced each other and immediately got onto a, like a, came to somewhere where we could joke together and um, he went away, read the script, called back the next day, said he was in. He was the first one in. Um, and he wasn't, he had to, he, he's acted, he started his career as an actor um, and but he hasn't you know done that much uh, he, he's sort of done cameos lately, and I saw him in, in, in uh, two, two of them. Um, so he wasn't, com he wasn't completely secure as an actor, which was an amazing position to be in with someone I admire so, so, ter so terribly much. Um, he's a great storyteller. He was never happier than when we had ten people in the scene and we were waiting for it you know, the room to be lit and he could entertain the masses and um, he's um, he didn't want, he didn't, he, you know, he wouldn't, it wasn't, he wouldn't try to change the writing um, which is the nightmare of course um, he, any more than anyone else who, like if he had difficulty getting his, his mouth around it, he basically, he's a really I, I, it's a career high for me to actually have, have worked with someone I I respect so much. His, his attraction to to the to the piece was um, was political. Hmm. I mean, I think you know, art, artistic as well. He wouldn't have, but he really loved the um, the uh, amplification of the slavery issue. He thought that that was really uh, an important contribution to make to what can become a sort of a celebration of um, you know the gentle, lovely ways of the gentle, lovely English people, or something. You know. So he, he, he was really attracted to pointing to the historical economic fact of that leisure. I mean, of the, the reason why they, people could have that leisure. Hmm. Jane Austen kept a list of how people reacted to this novel. She didn't do that with other ones. Um, so for some reason, and she'd say, so-and-so hates Fanny Price, so-and-so likes Fanny Price, so-and-so thinks she should have married Henry Crawford. There were a number of people in, of her contemporaries who thought she should have married Henry Crawford. So... So clearly, you know, in, in the novel itself, there is a kind of um, uh, dilemma, and I just sort of heightened that and made it a little bit more excruciating. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's like in this context, to have someone accept a proposal of marriage and then turn around and say no, 
it's kind of a violation of what you've come to expect from movies like this, or what you think you're getting from movies like this. That moment wasn't actually in the novel, um, the, the accepting. Uh, that was from Jane Austen's life. She almost uh, went down in history as Jane Harris Bigwither. Hmm. Jane Bigwither, she would have been. <laughs> but because um, she accepted a proposal of marriage from Mr. Bigwither and then... Um, thought better of it. And then thought better of it the next morning and, and <laughs> made a hasty retreat. Okay, over here. Well, she does. We do have her leaving at the end. She goes off. She, she's, I mean, she's going off to the parsonage at the end, right? She's leaving. She's, you know, moving into her new life with, with Edmund. That's the, uh, um, that is, I, I could, I could have had the big speech from the heroine at the end. And that's what, um, the sort of contemporary screenwriting books would have had me do. I think, and the, but that's I kind of drew the line there in terms of um, altering her character, and um, I, you know, I, I I felt like I had to address this point, I had to show it, and but I was in a way caught because I, you know, and as does Jane Austen, she shows it very clearly in her book and her title, I. I maintain that the title Mansfield Park is actually a clue to what her intentions were. The Mansfield Judgment was a very uh, well-known judgment at the time. It was the first judgment that limited slavery in England, and everyone would have known what the Mansfield Judgment was. It was the first sort of the great stride for abolitionists. Um, and she didn't title her novels lightly. You know, I think she was actually this. That was my starting point. This is this 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 book is a. And this movie will be a, a meditation on captivity in all of its forms and the treatment of humans as property. Um, so I was my my initial attraction was that I could show something that hadn't wasn't normally seen in this context, and that is pivotal. It is you know it it is in built into the foundation. It was important. Um, and it, I, but I could, but I couldn't have her. I couldn't change the entire story at the end, right? Um, I couldn't have her suddenly burn the place down, or, or. So I mean, I think her disapproval is registered. Your dis, your, you register, you the audience register, the disapproval on the part of the the film. Like the filmmaking tells you, you know, it's this. It's clear how, what your reaction is to be, um, and that felt like enough. Okay. It, it's a was Jane Austen an abolitionist? She wrote in one of her letters, um, "I have fallen in quote I have fallen in love with the um, writings of Thomas Clarkson, and Thomas Clarkson was an abolitionist. That's all he ever wrote about." So. We just have time for a few more questions. So people uh, are leaving, and my feelings are getting hurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back back there. I I had seen um, persuasion, sense and sensibility, 
I didn't get all the way through the TV version of Pride and Prejudice. Um, and that's it. But I had seen them long before I entered into this. And I didn't review them when, when I was about to make them. I didn't want to just be reacting against them. I remember thinking they were, uh, that there was beautiful dialogue, there was beautiful um, character definition, uh, that it was all a, just a, uh, all, all a bit too um, pretty for me. Even persuasion? Yeah, okay. even persuasion. I know, I know that's like the dirty, like that's funny. In, 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 um, in England, they say, so you're doing a dirty Austin or a clean Austin? And, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's rumor when she's doing the punk Austin. So like, <laughs> hardly, but um, yeah, no, e e even persuade. I mean, I, I really, really do admire them. So, and I just don't want to be in a position where I have to criticize good films. I think that... Um, the, the respect Emma Thompson got for her adaptation. I did look at uh, Emma Thompson's adaptation just to sort of, just, I, I, just to kind of get a um, glance at her scene structure because I thought it all flowed so, so beautifully. Um, and I was curious to see how closely she stuck. And there are certainly some very key moments in the film that aren't in the novel. So that gave me a bit of a sense of liberty. But um, uh, I know I really, really liked that. I think that was a real, that deserved the honors it got. Okay, right there. Okay, question about Leslie Barber, the composer. How did you come to work with her? Of course, you did, uh, she we did apologize for not being able to be here, by the way, but yeah. Right, and um, yeah, just what was your process like, working process on this film? Um, well, I met um, Leslie Barber, her agent sent me a tape of her music and I used to listen to it while I was writing, actually. I listened to it for about a year. And I thought, boy, this guy's really good. I just, in my little sexist brain, I kind of thought it was a guy. Um, then, um, and, but I was working with this other composer that I was quite pleased with, so there was no really reason to be interviewing anybody else. And then when, I did, when Night is Falling, I thought, well, let's just open up the doors and see who's there. And um, we... Uh, she brought in some new music again that that I I found it had a real um, gravity to it and intelligence um, that was um, thrilling for me. So we worked together on When Night Is Falling, and then I did another film, an hour with Yo-Yo Ma um, for. Um, it's, in, it's called Inspired by Bach. Um, it was a PBS thing, and she did the non. Uh, there was it, it involved Bach's um, sixth cello suite. She did the non-Bach part, and then we are. I mean, I intend to work again. I mean, it's there's uh, this is a. Serious, I mean, she can do anything. So, the process was, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's it's. First, we had to kind of decide how close to the period we would speak, we, we would stay, and how far we'd let ourselves go. And that's just a that's just a process of playing snippets of of music and and picking a couple of um, inspirational composers. I mean, Handel was one for this that that 
you know, we're we go pretty far afield from Handel, obviously. She would give me a tape. Um, once I was getting close to fine cut, she'd give me tapes with 20 themes on in it, and I would listen to them all and pick out ones that I a loved and b that I and and then try to think of placement for them, like where they would go in the film. So that would give her sort of an overview. And then the most difficult thing, part of that whole process is, how often do you repeat themes? That is, that's like, it's deadly. Because, you know, it, it can be, a, it can deaden. I, I believe that music does more for your experience of the movie than you have, than, than, than we have any inkling. It's a, it, it, it creates the atmosphere. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that, you know, in a, in a novel, you, the atmosphere is created by narrative, by the narrative voice. And in film, the, the music is doing that. The, the voice of the director or the voice of the filmmakers comes out through the music. The music is telling you whether to find this happy, sad, neutral. The music is, is telling you what to, what to feel. And if you are, if it's out of sync, if it's telling you, oh, this is a big emotional moment, and you're looking at it like, yeah, I don't buy this, then it, then it, then it's infuriating, and you, you know, the 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 audience is, is is removed from the experience of the movie. Whereas if it's in, so it's so it's like such a fine tuning of 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 playing a dramatic moment. Um, so yeah, the process is just a a lot, a lot of back and forth. We would. And that and, and that's an ongoing process is how much do I leave her alone to come up with her own thing? Because if I'm right in there on every, you know, little phrase, then it kind of hampers her creativity. That, I mean, that's the biggest decision for the director in relation to any other creative person is how much freedom do you give them so that they can really make it theirs? And then how much do you trample all over them? <laughs> Yeah, the song at the uh, during the credits. Salif Keita, this he's um, I uh, I love this man's voice and his music and his whole being. He's he's an amazing. Um, he's a Malian, and um, he uh, I asked him to write a piece for the film because I knew that we were going to have that little snippet of music uh, when she passes the boat uh, um, in the opening sequence. And then I wanted to have just little hints of it during the sketches when, when she discovers the sketches. Um, and then um, I just, I felt like it was a, it, this made a couple of people nervous in the process, but it felt it was very pointed and, um, and, and important to, to, to play that piece um, at the end. It's kind of like, and don't forget, and don't, you know, and don't forget. And he wrote this song, it's called Slavery, and it's a, it, it takes the voice of um, of a young African man who's been brought to the West Indies and he's working and he sees a bird flying overhead and he uh, and he says if he speaks to the bird and he said if you you know see the chief of my village tell him I am far if you see my father tell Perhaps it is God's will, which breaks my heart to even think, I mean, to think that anyone could 
think something so horrible could be God's will, if there is a God. But um, so he, he, I think he did a beautiful, beautiful job. But he's a he's a remarkable man. He comes on stage and he, and, you know, I saw him at Royal Festival Hall in England, and he just he drops to his knees and blesses the audience first, and then he does his his performance. Okay, well, I really want to thank you for coming down uh, just to be with us tonight. I congratulate you again on the film. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.